Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. The book of Revelation, chapter 21. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. Stand as you're able. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Just a heads up, this is my marathon day within the network. I will be preaching this service, Grace Meridian Hill service, and downtown service. So if I rush out of here, it's not because I'm tired of y'all. Uh, it's because I, I got to go take care of business for the rest of our network. So um, I'm going to keep this brief, but hopefully on point, from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. If you would lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would act now, that you would come now through your word preached faithfully, that your spirit would be present to do transforming work among us. And we pray that our hearts would be lifted and that we would have your joy and your joy would be made full in us. Let us be both hearers and doers of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1963, when Dr. King led the March on Washington to protest, uh, he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. We're all familiar. And in that speech, Dr. King said that they had gathered at the nation's capital to cash a check. And when the architects of American government wrote the words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, Dr. King said they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir, guaranteeing the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the reality for black Americans at the time was that it was evident that America had given them a bad check, a check that had bounced and had come back marked insufficient funds. Now, it would have been understandable for black Americans to do with that check what everybody does with a check that goes bad, with a check that bounces, to tear it up and to throw it away. But in his speech, Dr. King acknowledges the tension and he says, but we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. In essence, he says, don't tear up the check. And then he goes on to cast a vision of what the new reality will look like when they finally get to cash that check. On Sunday mornings, we as the church gather together for worship and we come to cash a check. 
when the Lord gave us his word, his story of rescue, his, his covenant promises, he was signing a promissory note to which every Christian is to fall heir, guaranteeing, guaranteeing our claim to joy, among other things. But at times, the circumstances of our lives and the world's present darkness make it seem as if we have been given a bad check that comes back marked insufficient funds. We experience heartbreak, disappointments, and losses, and it seems as if we're holding a bad check. Home life gets chaotic, our marriages falter, and the health of our loved ones declines. It seems as if we're holding a bad check. Our nation grows more polarized, News headlines surge with yet more victims of abuse and injustice. And it seems as if we're holding a bad check. But in our text for this morning, the Apostle John is reminding us that the bank of joy is not bankrupt. Because Christ has come, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. John is not looking at a constitution of a country. He's looking at the, the covenant promise of a savior. And he's saying to you and I, don't tear up the check. And in our text for this morning, he casts a vision of what the new reality will look like when we finally get to cash that check. And over this Advent season, we're going to consider from Revelation chapter 21... How the first and second comings of Christ meet our deepest longings and desires as human beings. Each one of our network pastors is going to address one of those deepest longings that is met in the first and second comings of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to address that deepest longing and desire of humanity, joy. And if we can see what John saw this morning, we will realize that joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. Joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. So let's look at our first point. Joy is our future existence. Now, the Apostle John is on the aisle of Patmos. He's exiled, he says, for the word of his testimony and his adherence to the truth of the gospel. And he's given a vision from God about the glorious future and the transformation that is to come when God judges evil and brings his kingdom into full flourishing. And he's looking into the results of the king's return. And he's out to refurbish the imaginations of his dear friends in the seven churches to which he is writing. He wants to rework their imaginations so that they can persevere through the trials and pains of this life. While all hell is breaking loose in the world, John would have all of heaven breaking loose in the church so that they can bear witness to the deeper truths and the bigger realities so that they could bear witness to the certain coming of Christ and his kingdom. Their eyes 
are full of tears, but John would have their hearts full of joy because they know what is to come and they know what they possess in their union with Christ. And they're able to see beyond the horizon of this world to the horizon of the new world. And our text gives us one of those final scenes of John's vision. We're in the final, final piece of the, the bigger vision that John has been given. And in this final vision, we, we ask a question. What was it that John saw? What did he see? We need to appreciate that John here is trying to express the inexpressible. He's trying to describe the indescribable in these pages. And so he uses this highly elevated and stylistic language that was known as apocalyptic. Somebody say apocalyptic. Okay, apocalyptic is basically a fancy word that means the revealing. So one of the ways that John tries to access the beauty and the power of this picture of the end is by using this highly stylized poetic language and these metaphors that help to usher us in. So, if you could place a tag over this scene before us this morning, you could, you could hang one tag over this text that would make sense of it, and that tag would be joy. This text is about joy. From the very beginning to the very end, this text is about joy. Five powerfully packed verses that are all about joy. And this is the shape of that joy. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. John sees a groaning world giving way to a glorious world. He sees a painful world giving way to a perfect world. He sees an evil world giving way to a joyful world. John mentions that the sea was no more. And for some of you, you're like, that's it. I quit. I love the beach. But you have to appreciate that this is a metaphor. Remember that this is a metaphor. What is it that separates John from his beloved friends as he's exiled on the island of Patmos? The sea. The sea is what separates him, but he sees a day where there will be no separation between beloved people. But the sea to these ancient peoples represented so much more. There was a deeper, a deeper reality that the sea pointed to because the sea represented everything that was chaotic and destructive of God's good creation. It represented everything that was out of their control that was going bad. The sea, if you read through the book of Revelation, the sea is a metaphor for the source of evil, the source of enmity, the source of wickedness and corruption that plagues the goodness and the beauty of this world. And John is saying, but that world will have no sea. The sea will be no more. Everything that they feared and could not control would be a distant memory. This will be a world of joy because all of the things that interrupt and frustrate our joy will be no more. But what else did John see? 
Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem. And at the very moment that John was writing these words, the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. It had been destroyed in A.D. 70, torn down to the ground. It was ashes. It was, it was ruined. The beloved city that he had known was no more. But John says, I, I can look through the ruin of this Jerusalem because I see a new Jerusalem coming. I see a new city coming. And he, he casts it in, this, in this, this context of wedding, festive wedding joy. Like, like a wedding reception where there's eating and drinking and dancing and joy and happiness and celebration because there has been a consummation of lives being drawn together in love. And he says, I see a city adorned as a bride. It's coming down from heaven. And all of the pain and the hurt of seeing the contemporary Jerusalem laying in waste and ruin will be undone. He's speaking to an urban people. And he's telling them something that is meant to revive their life in the city. Because John is saying, you may look out over your city and see it lying in ruin. You may see it as a, as a, as a heap of ashes and brokenness and despair. But there's a new city that we're headed toward. The new Jerusalem. He sees a restoration coming. And notice that he says he sees a holy city, a different city than anything we have ever known. And it, and it comes in that context of, of wedding joy. It's an absolutely and uniquely beautified city. John sees a new Jerusalem, a city where there are no broken political promises, a city in which no lie will be uttered. No protests will be necessary and no evil words will ever be spoken. He sees a city where no shady business deals will take place, where nobody will be homeless or friendless or helpless, where none will rob and steal and murder, where nobody will be exploited and stepped on. There will be no orphans, no corruption of life, no inequality, no taxes, no broken down metro, and nobody will have to go to the DMV. Amen? Yeah. Amen. That's the loudest amen I ever got from y'all. No DMV. Hallelujah. He sees a new city. This is going somewhere, y'all. It's going somewhere. We have to see what John saw, and then we're going to draw out the implications of what that means for us as we live here in this city. But the most important reality that John sees is not an absence. It's a presence. He says there will be no more, no more, no more, no more. Okay? That's one way of doing theology when you're faced with mystery. It's called the via negativa or apophatic theology. It's describing something by saying that it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. The new heavens and the new earth. It's not this broken down world. It's not evil and murder and violence and injustice and wickedness and oppression. But what is it? 
Now John tells us in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look, the greatest cause for our joy is not amenities, it's the Trinity. Do you see this? It's not the amenities of glory. Oh, we're going to fly fish in the, in the river of life. I hope we do. Oh, we're going to have a, a festive, we're going to eat the food in glory, and, and we're going to celebrate and dance together. Yes, that is true, but that's not the main event. The main event is going to be absolutely beautiful and undisrupted communion with God. And that is what our souls were made for. And everything in this world that we experience, when we get the little hints of beauty, when we get the little hints of goodness and joy, C.S. Lewis says there, it's, it's like, it's like the, the sound of a song that we have not yet heard. It's like the scent of a flower that we've not yet seen. But on that day, we will behold what our souls were created for. We will behold the one for whom we were, we were made. Who uniquely can satisfy. Who uniquely can delight. Who uniquely can can give us permanence and stability. There will be no interruption in our communion with God, in our delight in God, in our love for God. There'll be no interruptions. You know, like when you're trying to have an adult conversation and someone's tugging on your leg. I know y'all know about that, right? The, the, the disrupt I can't all the way enter in. That's what sin and brokenness and evil in this world does. It's constantly tugging on us, jumping on us, disrupting our communion and our delight. But on that day, there will be no disruption. There will be nothing intercepting our loving relationship with God. And we will be all the way satisfied. All the way. No remorse. No regret. No disappointment. It will be all the way invigorating and exhilarating and captivating. That's what we're headed for. God himself is the great prize of the new heaven and the new earth. There won't be any need for the sun. God will put the sun on permanent retirement he won't need the sun. The sun will still be there, but compared to his light, it will look like a black marble hanging in the sky. He's so brilliant in his glory. There will be no more night. This is the new world that we're headed to. Joy is our future existence. But what's that mean for right now? I know you're talking about that day when we're going to get to cash the check, but what do I do now while I'm holding what appears to be just a, a piece of paper? What do I do in the in-between time? This is painful. This is difficult. We, we live in a direct deposit society. We don't know what to do with a check, right? We don't know what to do with a check. And if you're old enough to remember dealing with checks, you might have dealt with people who, who said, Hey, hey, I'm giving this to you today, this Monday, but don't cash that until Friday. You know, 
Just hold, just hold on to that. I got to get my checking and my savings together. I got a little situation, you know what I'm saying? You, you might be used to these, these false promises. But even back when checks were the primary commerce, there was such thing as a certified check. A certified check could not bounce. Hey, a, a certified check was guaranteeing that you were going to get that money. So you could skip along with that check knowing that you, though you don't have the money yet, you have it. That's what we have in the promises of God. But what does that mean for right now? This is what it means for right now. Joy is our present resistance. This is our second point. Here's the deal. The way I want you to think about this uh, comes by way of a story. You may have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian at the, in Germany at the time of the Nazi regime. And Bonhoeffer, along with some of his, uh, his, his people known as the Confessing Church, they were Christians who were leaning against the false Christianity that was being espoused by the, the Nazi regime. Under the guise of Christianity, they were propagating some of the most heinous evil that has ever taken place in the world. With the extermination of the Jewish people. But these confessing Christians, they were leaning against this evil. And they were leaning against this, this brokenness and this wickedness. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, started an underground seminary. He started an underground seminary, but the Nazi regime shut him down. And Bonhoeffer took theological training underground and opened this seminary in Finkenwald. Okay? And before the Gestapo shut it down in 1939, the students scattered. And so the way that, the way that Bonhoeffer uh, engaged with his students was he wrote these circular letters, much like the apostles did. And in one of these circular letters, Bonhoeffer uh, offers this, this form of understanding joy. And he contrasts two different kinds of joy. One is a false joy. And one is a real joy. And I want you to listen carefully because this makes a difference in the way that you understand joy. Because most versions of joy are very sentimental and hallmarky. And that is not Christian joy. It has an emotional component to it, an emotive component. It hits you in the feelings, but that's not, it can't be reduced to that. This is, this is what Bonhoeffer says in the context of Nazi Germany to those who would resist that. He says, A sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but it finds life precisely within it. That's what Advent tells us. Joy gets inside of the evil and completely bursts it. That's where he finds it. Advent hope doesn't lead you to avoid the ugly, the painful realities of this world. It leads you to stare them in the face, to see Christ present there, and to even see through them. 
Just as we look through the ugly and painful reality of the crucifixion to a resurrection. Joy stares through the present evil in front of me. The evil in front of me is permeable. I can see through it to joy on the other side. I stare through a cross and I see a resurrection on the other side. And I am able right now to have stability, stable contentment because I see through this thing right here. I see the expiration date on it. The first advent, listen, the first advent leads God's people into an honest confrontation with and resistance to the darkness of this world. But the second advent leads us out. When you look at the first advent and you see God entering into the brokenness, God entering into the despair, God entering into those who are oppressed and broken down to give hope, then we become a people that's able to face it honestly, to enter into it, to stare it down, to face it down, because we know in his second advent he's leading us out. And hopefully we're coming out with the friends that we entered into suffering with because we were able to help them to turn their eyes to see that this present evil in this world is not the last word. Frederick Beekner said this. He said, this is, this is fire. Listen carefully. Once you have seen God in a stable, you can never be sure of where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in this wild pursuit of man. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, the birth of this peasant's child then there is no place or time so lowly, so earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. Do you hear that? If God is caught in a stable, he can be caught anywhere. If there is hope in a stable, there can be hope found in a ghetto. If there is hope that can be found among peasants, then there's hope that can be found in Northeast D.C. There's hope to be found. You cannot, you cannot figure him out. God is a mystery. That means he can show up in the places where you don't expect him to. And where you think that God is most absent is the very place where God is most present. That's good news. That's hopeful news. And that's the kind of framework that the people of God are to have. This means we don't become numb to the pain and suffering of this world. But you can properly place it in the right context of the larger story and with great warrant for hope that God can and will be found in the very situations where we would consider him to be most absent. Like marriages that are hard. Like relationships that are broken. Like neighborhood situations that are fraught with tension. The places that seem to be most centered on despair are the places where God is most likely to be found. If admit means anything to us. It means that. Our joy is the strongest witness to Advent. Joy is a defiant but God.
counteracting every shade of darkness, every pain, every loss, and every ache of our souls. We shed real tears, but God is taking us to the tearless day. There is death now, but God has sent Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, and he's coming again. There is mourning now, but God will turn our mourning into dancing. We weep now, but God has announced that joy will come in the morning and that day will break. The evil things, the painful things, the mournful things, the dark things will one day become, as the text says, the former things. The former things. That's the tagline that John summarizes this evil world with. He's so overwhelmed with the world that is to come. What he beholds is so astonishing that all he can throw on the, the evil ages, the former things. <laughs> they, they so pale in comparison. Listen, the testimony of the Christian is wonderfully captured in the famous poem by Maya Angelou, who spoke defiant hope for an afflicted people. I think we can take this poem on as a testimony for ourselves. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, I rise, I rise, I rise. Let's pray.